Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. And this is London, but broadcasting to you, of course, all over the world. Thanks to the wonders of the internet, Love Island became Death Island with the news that the erstwhile presenter of the show, Caroline Flack, at the age of just 40, took her own life and may she rest in peace. She clearly uh, was a woman who got caught up in something very sinister, very damaging indeed. And I'm going to deal with this story from both sides because there's a danger of the British in a fit of moral hysteria attempting to address the issues raised by this young woman's death in entirely the wrong way, in ways which will make every matter worse. Some of you won't like my take on these events, but it's my duty to tell you the truth as I see it. Love Island is an excrescence. I have never watched it, of course, uh, but it is a narcissistic jamboree, exploitative in the extreme, of young people at the most vulnerable parts of their lives. And it's done for profit for ITV, and it's done for the profit of the revolting tabloids that we have here in Britain, who suck at the teat until it bleeds, and bleed it has. Two of the participants of Love Island have committed suicide, and now the presenter, who was paid two million pounds a year to present Love Island, has taken her own life at the apex of her fame and presumably wealth. Everyone gets a piece of the action, but some people get more of a piece than others. The tabloids fill their pages on a daily basis with the latest trials and tribulations of young teenagers, young people, young vulnerable people, making a fool of themselves, betraying each other, betraying their partners outside, preening and cockwalking down the beaches of wherever it is filmed. The whole thing is based on muscular, beautiful young people who of course do their best to live up to that ideal, but it doesn't always work out like that. They're not always the people that they are pretending to be on screen. That's what happens in reality TV. I spent 22 days inside the big house of Big Brother. I know what it does to your mind. And so it came as no surprise to me when serious problems began to present themselves with people who'd been released from the island and on whom the cameras were no longer trained and who had to face the music of the things they had done and said on that television program. 
The tabloids love it. It's a staple of the tabloid. The only reason I know about Love Island or I've ever heard of Caroline Flack was because when I was on a local radio station here in Britain owned by Rupert Murdoch, who owns the biggest of the tabloids, of course, they would speak about nothing else in the show before I came on air. And the man who had to hand over to me was the associate editor of The Sun, the worst of Mr. Murdoch's British tabloid newspapers. Dan Wooten was his name. He's crying today in his Chardonnay about the demise of Caroline Flack, but he was writing horrific stories and exposés about her before she committed suicide. He's crying now. She's not crying because she's dead, Dan. Now, all of that may seem to you to be a prelude to me demanding new laws, state action, and so on, but it's not. Because I'm here to tell you the only thing worse than the rabid mass media, the rabid so-called mainstream media that we have in this country, the only thing worse than that is a state-controlled media where there are laws to protect rich and famous people from exposure. And there's people now, right now, gathering signatures. I heard one in the car on the way here. 92,000 people have signed a petition demanding social media safeguards for celebrities. Now just pause and think about that for one minute. Many of these celebrities are only celebrities because of social media. Many of these celebrities are consciously, proactively exploiting social media to put their price up, to sell tickets, to sell records, films, books. If you have a law which says social media celebrities must be safeguarded, what you are really saying is that they must be treated differently to ordinary non-celebrities and protected and safeguarded from criticism, and you're saying to them, you've got a license to print money. We'll stop anyone criticizing you, attacking you, ridiculing you. All you need to do is show up on the social media and sell your tickets. That would clearly be a monstrosity. I also see people damning the Crown Prosecution Service for bringing criminal charges against the late and lamented Caroline Flack for having allegedly attacked her partner in his sleep so severely that there was blood on every wall, blood everywhere. And the partner called the police 999. What were the police to do? Say we're not going to come because she's a troubled celebrity? What was the CPS supposed to do? Not bring charges because she was a celebrity? And what was the media to do? Not report the fact that a two million a year television personality had allegedly banjoed her partner at the very risk of his life. 
and that the police had been called, that the man had been taken to hospital. Do you really want to repress that kind of news? You can't do so, because if you do so, you're saying to the rich and powerful, the celebrities, those that rule us, that there can be one law for them and a different law for a man who commits an assault up an alley in Middlesbrough or somewhere else, a man who is not a celebrity or a woman who is not a celebrity for that matter. This is the road to madness. Once upon a time in Parliament, I talked out a private member's bill by a Tory MP called Nigel Watterson who wanted to introduce a privacy law. And I was able to say, look, I could show you my scars. I have actually had worse treatment from the mass media on social media than the vast majority of celebrities. But I'm here to say, I told the parliament, that this would be paving the road to hell with good intentions. Because once rich and powerful people can do what they like, shielded by laws which have built walls to allow them to carry on to their heart's desire, then you would be in a totalitarian society. And a totalitarian society bent to the wishes and the interests of the rich and powerful. Prince Andrew, for example, his conduct under a privacy law, under the protection of celebrities law, or whatever the petitioners want to call it, you would know nothing about the kind of things that the Queen's son has been doing with his well-upholstered life paid for by us, the taxpayer. If it wasn't for the Daily Mail, you wouldn't know any of these things. You wouldn't know about Ghislaine Maxwell. You wouldn't know about Prince Andrew and his relationship to Jeffrey Epstein. And now another sex beast whose island, whose private island he's been visiting. What was it about this sex beast's private island that first attracted you, Prince Andrew? What I'm saying is, Yes, our tabloid media, yes, our mass media is oftentimes utterly revolting. But you try being in a state-controlled media environment, because I've been there. I've seen that. I tell you, it marks death for democracy, for freedom of speech, for freedom of expression for freedom from the algorithms and freedom from the people that own the platforms, the so-called public square that turns out to be anything but public, I promise you, that would be good night. Do not go quietly into that good night. Now, if there's blood on the beach on Love Island, there's blood on the walls in the Democratic Party in the United States. The latest wheeze given the utter failure of the waxwork Joe Biden, given the utter failure of the fake Cherokee Elizabeth Warren, given the utter failure of Pete, however you pronounce his name, Buttigieg, 
is the best I can do. Given their utter failure to check the remorseless insurgency of Senator Bernie Sanders, they've come up with what must be the most grotesque, the most grotesque pairing in history, certainly in Western political history. They want to run the billionaire Michael Bloomberg, former mayor of New York, a Republican, a man who went to the Republican convention and endorsed the presidential campaign of George W. Bush, a man who didn't even participate in the debates or the primaries up till now, but who's now spending money out of his $67 billion fortune like it was going out of fashion. But worse, worse even than a president, Michael Bloomberg, would be Hillary Clinton as his running mate. And that, it appears, is what they intend. They intend to blow Bernie Sanders out of the water by running Bloomberg and Clinton as their ticket. Well, in one sense, I've, well, look, it's incumbent on me to tell you, I would not encourage anyone, anyone, anyone to vote for Bloomberg and Clinton. And I think that the great majority of the supporters of Bernie Sanders, if this process is rigged in favor of Bloomberg and Hillary, will never vote for that ticket. And that means get ready for another four years of Donald J. Trump as president. Now, lastly, though there are many other issues on the agenda this evening, we have to look at another very, very vexatious issue. I watched uh, the so-called Corbyn candidate, Rebecca Long Bailey on television today, whose number one priority, number one priority, if she becomes leader of the Labour Party, is to deal with anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. Mind you, that's the number one priority of all three of the candidates, as spoken on television. But Rebecca Long Bailey wants to make a law in Britain that if you identify as a woman, you are a woman. Not that you must be treated like a woman, as I've already told you, I've already done that. I had a, a comrade who was a man whose hand I used to shake, who began to identify as a woman whose cheek I used to kiss, but who changed back to being a man again and whose hand I now shake. If somebody wants to identify as a woman, I'm prepared to stand up when they come back to the table, open the door for them to go through first, I'm ready to kiss their cheek rather than shake their hands. In other words, I'm ready to treat them as they want to be treated. But they are not women. And to make a law which so offends science and logic has to be the most disastrous labor policy yet. And yet, they're starting to apply it right now inside their own party. If anyone made the statement I have just made in the British Labour Party, imagine the party of Keir Hardy, the party of Ernest Bevin, the party of James Callaghan, Michael Foote, Tony Benn, 
you would be expelled forthwith from the Labour Party for making the statement that I just made because their position is that if you identify as a woman, then you are a woman. This is the edge of madness. As a matter of fact, it's over the edge. It's into the chasm of madness. But that's what Rebecca Long Bailey intends for you in Britain. We're going to be talking to a man educated at Oxford University who became a rapper, who became a banker, who is an author and a coach. Of course, he's the legendary Zuby. And what's his connection to this story? Well, he's a super strong guy. So he decided to identify as a woman, albeit briefly, in order to break the women's weightlifting record. And he is now the world record holder in women's weightlifting, even though he's not a woman and only briefly identified as one in order to break this record, to get into the Guinness Book of Records. That's where this madness leads. It leads to men playing in women's football and using the strength and speed they have as men to cut a swathe through the defences of the women's football team, actual women, that he's playing against. Boys and men are winning, winning women's sporting events all over the world, merely by identifying as women. I'm sorry, I cannot remain silent on this. I have actually tried to stay out, by and large, of this whole affair, because it was such a swamp and guaranteed such a backlash on social media. But hey, I don't need any safeguards. I can just block lunatics. And if it gets too hot, I could just not go on social media. It's quite easy, you know. You just don't click the button. Now, just when you thought it was safe to get back into the water that Bernie Sanders was powering ahead, now Michael Bloomberg and his billions are powering up the table. Well, if you can run more television ads than any other competitor, in fact, more than all the other competitors put together, and if you announce Hillary Clinton's going to be your running mate, well, you've definitely exploded a nuclear device in the Democratic Party's process to pick their candidate to fight Donald Trump. I'm joined by the one and only speaker, writer, and political analyst, and my colleague at RT America, Caleb Mopan, my favorite. Caleb, welcome. Glad to be here as always. Now, uh, I didn't see that one coming, did you? A Bloomberg Hillary Clinton ticket? Well, it's not really surprising, right? The, uh, the New York City establishment that, that Bloomberg represented when he was mayor of this city Hillary Clinton, who represented New York in the U.S. Senate. And, you know, I, it's, it's not really a shocking combination. I guess what is shocking is that Hillary Clinton would attempt to reintroduce herself into the American elections after the epic disaster of 2016. Um, the fact that she was so overconfident, didn't visit Wisconsin, uh, made statements about a basket of deplorables, you know, basically just, just offering just blatant hatred for so many people in Rust Belt states. Uh, the fact that anyone would even consider having her on the ticket again is certainly shocking. 
Well, uh, let's talk about him first then. He is uh, spending big. He said he's prepared to spend $1 billion of his own money on this race. And I'll warrant he'll go further than that if he gets the nomination. Uh, he is, he's burst into the ratings. I mean, I'm looking at the opinion polls every day. Uh, he's already well ahead of Biden and Warren. Uh, it's quite likely to come down to him versus Bernie for the nomination, isn't it? Indeed, indeed. Uh, he's, he's looking to be the centrist Democrat. And what's rather ironic is it's constantly being pointed out. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Out by Bernie Sanders' Democratic Party detractors that technically Bernie Sanders is a registered independent. But as a member of the U.S. Senate, as a member of the House of Representatives before that, he was always treated as a Democrat. He was a socialist. He was considered to be left wing. He was treated as a Democrat. But when Bloomberg was mayor of this city, and I lived here when he was mayor of this city, uh, he was a Republican. He was a member of the Republican Party, and he fought tooth and nail against the Democratic Party here on issues like living wage bills, for example. Not only did he veto a, a bill that would require all companies contracted by New York City to pay a decent wage, he not only vetoed it, he then sued the city over the bill to prevent it from being implemented. He worked really, really hard to prevent living wage legislation. Uh, when it came to the issue of the stop and frisk with the police search people randomly on the street without cause to make sure they have no weapons. That was a staple of his leadership of this city. So, yes, you know, it wasn't quite random, was it, Caleb? It wasn't quite mm -hmm. random. Uh, not exactly. No, I mean, it's been documented and court cases showed that certain ethnic groups and, and, and were certainly targeted by it wasn't a random policy, but that was what he was all about. And he, he went after the Muslim community in New York City pretty viciously with the sending of provocateurs into mosques and, and all kinds of frame-up operations, you know, just stoking up fear of Muslims. And, and uh, you know, on certain social issues, he was somewhat liberal, but, uh, but he was not considered a friend of the Democratic Party here. But now, uh, as he's you know competing in the national election, all of a sudden he and the Democratic Party elite are tied uh, tied closer than a knot. I mean, they're they're closer than ever. What's interesting is Bill De Blasio, who is our current mayor, who endorsed Hillary Clinton in 2016, has endorsed Bernie Sanders. So that was kind of a surprise. Many assumed that because he had endorsed Hillary Clinton before, that he would then endorse uh, he would endorse some centrist Democrat this time. But Bill De Blasio, the successor of Michael Bloomberg, is now in the Bernie camp. So quite an interesting turn of events. Now Bernie's doing very well. 
but he's having to fight quite a large number of rivals. Presumably, they start to winnow out now. Uh, it's uh, it's uh, Las Vegas uh, today, Nevada today, isn't it? How do you hear that's going? Well, you know, if you'll recall, the last race in Nevada got pretty ugly when the Democratic National Committee of, of, Colorado, of Nevada had their state convention. There was quite a bit of scuffling last time. It was particularly ugly. It was one of the more heated states. Um, but what's really crazy, as you just pointed out, you know, Bernie Sanders is the front runner at this point, according to all the polls, right? He was, he was leading in the votes in Iowa, leading in the votes in New Hampshire. He's ahead, right? Polls show he's ahead. He is the front runner. But mainstream U.S. media just cannot bring themselves to say those words. Uh, they say, you know, they report on New Hampshire. Wow, second place for Buttigieg. Wow, third place for Amy Klobuchar. They just cannot bring themselves to say that Bernie Sanders is in the lead. It, it causes them physical pain almost. You watch these CNN anchors sit there and try their hardest to just not articulate that Bernie Sanders is winning. It's, 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 it's shocking to watch. They're, they're painfully trying to report results without reporting victories for Bernie Sanders. It's like nothing we've ever seen. You want to talk about media bias. The results are there right next to them, and they can't say, they cannot say the words, Bernie Sanders is in the lead, Bernie Sanders is the front runner. Is it safe to say, as I said earlier, that Biden is bust, uh, that he'd be better, uh, he'd be better retiring before further embarrassment overcomes him? Oh, indeed. I mean, we've seen, I mean, between the, 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 you know, the inappropriate touching of women and these hugs that turn into him sniffing and the weird comments to little girls, you go a little bit further and the inappropriate racial innuendo and the claiming he was a civil rights activist and then backing away from the claim that he's a civil rights activist and now all of a sudden he was a civil rights activist again. Uh, weird anecdotes about fighting people with chains when he was a lifeguard at a pool. Uh, you know, I mean, you have to wonder if, the, if this man, you know, is starting to struggle with a little bit of dementia. I mean, I mean, you hear some of the things that, that has been said. So, you know, many people are looking at Joe Biden and thinking, okay, you've got that bluster, you've got that working class tough guy charm that everyone likes, but but you're saying things that are just just not winning you any any favors. Uh, uh, it, it's very very odd. And his relationship with the whole tough on crime situation, the fact that he called for building a wall along the Mexican border years decades before Trump did. Uh, you know you know Biden seems to seems to not really be the new flavor of the Democratic Party. He's not what all these young young people who are excited to go out and beat Donald Trump and are pouring into Bernie Sanders rallies. Joe Biden isn't what they want to hear. He just isn't. Now, uh, on that kind of uh, subject, we're not hearing so much about uh, Bernie's age and previous heart problem uh, because Bloomberg is the same age uh, with much more serious heart problems. Have you noticed that? Uh, indeed, indeed. And um, it seems like all the all the leading candidates in the Democratic Party seem to be up there in age. Um, you know, there's there's certainly there's certainly no no danger of, of, of having a candidate who's too young and inexperienced. Uh, so right. it, it's quite amusing. But when you look at it, the Democratic Party, they have this legacy of being the party of urban political machines. And you can go back to you can go back to the Roosevelt years you can go back to even further than that. 
The Democratic Party has always been the party of, of urban political machines, and they are associated with corruption, with nepotism, and that has always been the curse hanging over the Democrats. The Republicans, on the other hand, you know, they started out as a very radical left-wing political party that was opposed to slavery. Karl Marx was a supporter of the Republican Party, and the New York City Republican Party newspaper uh, actually printed Karl Marx's writings, the New York Tribune, but they were always the party of small farmers and such, but they became the conservative party later. But, but even though the, the politics have shifted, the demographics remain. The, the Democrats are the party of urban political machines. The Republicans are the party of rural folks and, and farmers, and, and that divide remains. And while the Republicans are very fanatical and extreme, and people may not vote for them because they don't agree with them, with the Democrats, they have the problem, especially when it comes to centrists like you know Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden and such, that, that people just don't believe what they say. They know what they are associated with. If you live in New York City, if you live in Chicago, if you live in Philadelphia, if you live under these long-standing Democratic Party machines, you know that a lot of times, you know, there's a lot going on in the back room. There's a lot of deals that are being made. There's a lot of dishonesty. And that's what the Democratic Party is associated with. So so maybe yeah, people don't agree with the Republicans, but they Tammany, don't believe the Democrats. Yeah. Uh, smoke-filled rooms, Tammany Hall. Um, that is most uh, people over here anyway. That's their uh, idea of the Democrats. Before we leave them, uh, what happens next? As I said, it's Nevada today. Is uh, South Carolina on Tuesday? Indeed. I mean, it's heating up. Uh, we've, got, we've got many big primaries coming up, and Bernie Sanders is ahead at this point. It seems like the base of the Democratic Party agrees with Bernie Sanders. This notion that we ought to have guaranteed health care, we ought to have guaranteed college education, this is what rank-and-file Democrats believe. But there is a leadership of the Democratic Party that does not want to hear this, and there's a mainstream media, even MSNBC, which is Democratic Party you know, aligned, they just don't want to let this happen. They are they are reluctant. They are fighting this tooth and nail. So it, it, it's going to be crazy. What is going to happen at this convention? I mean, when we, we head toward July, uh, what, is, what in the world is going to take place? How is the Democratic Party going to resolve this? And will the disagreements among Democrats ultimately result in a Trump victory? A lot of questions remain because this is an unprecedented situation. If you'd have said maybe, you know, five, six years ago that Bernie Sanders would be the presidential frontrunner, people would have laughed. Right. Things have rapidly, dramatically changed in the United States in the political climate. Well, Donald Trump must be laughing, uh, mustn't he? Uh, all of this is uh, meat and drink to him, a divided Democratic Party. If they pick Bernie, he runs a red baiting campaign. Uh, they're already calling uh, Bernie not a socialist, but a communist and sometimes with a capital C. Uh, and uh, if they don't pick Bernie, uh, he'll be crying crocodile tears for how crazy Bernie was cheated again. Uh, and uh, he'll, uh, if it's Bloomberg, uh, it'll be the big uh, New York billionaire against the midget uh, New York billionaire who might have more money but lacks almost everything else that Trump has got. Indeed. I will say, you know, it, right now it looks good for Trump, but there is one wild card, which is that, you know, Donald Trump began his State of the Union address recently by saying that the U.S. economy is the best it has ever been in all of U.S. history, which is quite a dramatic statement to make. And he has seemed to bet all of the House. He has put all of his chips on the economy. And if something rumbles on Wall Street and, and if things are not looking good economically, 
come October, November, Donald Trump could very well be suffering the consequences for these very grandiose and boastful statements he's made about the state of the economy. Because the reality is, even though stock market numbers are up, even though unemployment numbers are low, uh, when it comes to the rate of debt in the United States, when it comes to our crumbling infrastructure around the country, when it comes to a whole generation of young people with low-wage, short-term jobs, a lot of people are suffering. And if things don't continue to, to go artificially high on the stock market. And if the economy rumbles a little bit, Donald Trump could soon be eating his words very dramatically. You think even Bloomberg could beat him? Uh, if, if, if this economy doesn't continue to go well, uh, Donald Trump could be on his way out because he has bet everything. He has put everything he's got. He has, he has boasted out, out the, you know, the, at the highest volume about how good the economy is. And if the economy gets worse, he's got nothing. If uh, Bernie's cheated, will he run as an independent? If he's cheated and Bloomberg is uh, imposed? I don't think he will do that. No, I think Bernie Sanders will support the nominee. However, let's be clear, Joe Biden, Elizabeth Warren, and some others have indicated that they might not support Bernie Sanders, if he ends up being the nominee. So, yeah, Bernie has always been, he endorsed Hillary Clinton. He said that he would support uh, whoever the Democratic nominee is. But the centrists have, have actually not given a clear answer about whether or not they would back Bernie Sanders in November. So quite an interesting turn of events. Finally, and I'm grateful for your time, Caleb, uh, w this anti-Semitism thing, I know it sounds uh, utterly bonkers, uh, given that Bernie Sanders is himself Jewish. Uh, but there was an attempt made to carbonize uh, Sanders on the issue of anti-Semitism, to call uh, the man with the best chance of ever being the first Jewish president of the United States, to call him an anti-Semite. Has that prospered or flourished in, in any way? Well, it depends who you ask, really. I, I think that, that, you know, the majority of American Jews are in the Democratic Party um, and don't see Bernie Sanders that way. However, among, you know, more conservative Jews, Orthodox Jews, we've seen some interesting articles, like Jonah Goldberg, who is the editor of National Review, wrote an article, basically, he, he called it Karl Marx's Jew-hating conspiracy theory, arguing that any criticism of capitalism is inherently anti-Semitic, and that, that, that when Karl Marx wrote the Communist Manifesto, bourgeoisie was just code for Jew, right? So there is this feeling among a lot of right-wing forces that all leftism, all socialist ideology is somehow, you know, a covert form of anti-Semitism. And that belief is widespread among Republicans and conservatives in the United States. Uh, however, I I think for the majority of the folks in the Democratic camp, they don't buy that. They really, really don't buy that argument. Um, what is interesting is it's pretty clear that Israel has no love for Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders has said, while he's critical of Netanyahu and critical of the Israeli government, he actually takes a position that Israel, you know, he recognizes it as a country. He, he supports Israel, basically, despite being harshly critical of it. But uh, he was not invited, you'll recall, in 2016. Uh, he ended up not speaking to the American political, uh, the Israeli American Political Action Conference, and that, uh, that, that, that many people have pointed out that, that the pro-Israel uh, you know, forces in the United States have no love for Bernie Sanders. They don't trust him. They consider him to be not their friend. So, so it's a complicated situation there. Really, it is. Well, complicated indeed, not least because Karl Marx also was Jewish, and the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917 was routinely characterized as the Judeo-Bolshevik revolution uh, and yet uh, now we now we have uh, s such people uh, 
smoking out Bernie Sanders and Karl Marx as anti-Semites. Caleb Mopan, always a pleasure to see you and hear you and your analysis. It won't be long, I think, before we talk again. Thanks very much for joining us uh, in 1959 uh, on this week. Fidel Castro was sworn in as Prime Minister of Cuba. He, of course, later became President, but the swearing in of this bearded and uniformed revolutionary fighter uh, attracted a very great deal of attention in 1959, on this day, in this week at least, when he was sworn in. So we thought it would be good to take a look, not just back at those days, but at what has become of Cuba, which is still in the United States crosshairs, perhaps particularly in an election year when Florida in, is in play. Uh, it's a particularly dangerous time for the people of Cuba. But the failure to unseat the revolution in Venezuela could lead, and some in Washington are hoping it will lead, to a doubling down on the efforts to bring down the Cuban revolution for the first time now, no longer led by someone whose surname is Castro. So we've got Bernard Regan, the national secretary of the Cuba Solidarity Campaign, on the line now, I hope. Bernard, good evening. Welcome to you. Good evening, George. Now, uh, the Fidel was there a very long time, and then Raul, a decent uh, time. Uh, we now don't have a Castro at the helm uh, in Cuba. Have you noticed any difference in the orientation inside the country and in its policy towards outside? I was there in October, George, and um, I was very uh, reassured, or at least uh, well informed, to learn that there is a real commitment of continuity towards the achievements that the revolution has succeeded in, uh, in making over the decades. I think the, the biggest challenge that they face, and you've alluded to this already, is really the change in the presidency of the United States, which, uh, although strategically not varying very much from Obama's objectives of, of wanting to get rid of the revolution, nevertheless has really ratcheted up the, the pressures on Cuba. So there was a clear determination uh, amongst people to continue uh, with retaining the gains that they've made in terms of health, education, all of those kind of things, absolutely committed to that. Um, so that was very, very clear to me. Um, but it is, as you've said, and we've been talking about, it is the changes in the White House that are really the kind of uh, new scenario that we have to look at. Because uh, President Obama had uh, taken some steps towards normalization, uh, but they've been reversed, I presume, by Donald Trump. They, some, of them, some of them have, uh, and certainly some of the measures that have been taken are quite grave in terms of the threats to the Cuban economy. Uh, we saw with Obama uh, not so much a change in strategic objective, but a change in tactics, a decision to adopt a more uh, emollient kind of attitude towards Cuba, a more soft approach, if you like. So. Uh, diplomatic relations were restored. That is that the various embassies of the respective embassies were reopened. Uh, there was a dialing down of the uh, demagogy that came particularly from the from the White House and CIA and their allies. Uh, but in terms of kind of wishing to see changes in Cuba, Obama didn't differ 
uh, in the long term from what he wanted to see. That is, he wanted to see the ability of the American big companies to reinstall themselves on the island uh, and to see the gains that have been made go backward. Uh, however, what we're now seeing with Trump is certainly a, a qualitative shift in terms of that, not only um, uh, being clearly openly committed to ending the gains of the revolution, but actually imposing sanctions that go beyond what even was in place uh, for the last 23 years prior to Obama. And those are measures that are particularly attacking the Cuban economy. And I think it's relevant for us here in Britain to give some reflection to what the implications of that might be. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's obviously always been the U.S. intent to extraterritorialize their measures against Cuba, in other words, to force other states to comply with their unilaterally imposed sanctions and so on. Is that still going on? Very much so, and I do think it's, it's, it's got considerably worse. I was there, as I said, in October, and whilst I was there, uh, there were certainly kind of problems with the delivery of oil, for example, um, so electrical, uh, electricity production and so on was, was uh, hampered to some extent. And measures were taken to change working arrangements, people uh, using daylight hours uh, to work and uh, therefore avoid the necessity to use too much electricity, uh, people being uh, given the right to work at home and things like that so that transport wasn't over overutilized and various measures were taken precautionary to, to, to ensure that the substantive uh, aspects of, uh, of life would be preserved, like hospitals having access to generators and electricity and so on. So it's not a, it's not a dire situation, but they were taking precautions. And what was interesting to me was that whenever I talked to any Cubans, and I talked to a lot of Cubans on the street and round and about, and people came and talked, it was very evident people understood precisely why this was happening. Uh, and that was that it was the measures taken by Trump that were having this impact. Now, he's gone beyond that, uh, and what he's also uh, begun to do is to limit the number of cruise ships going from the United States, which brought visitors. Visitors are down, I think it's something like um, a, a million down from uh, previous year in terms of United States visitors uh, coming to Cuba. We're seeing also um, some organizations like Trivago, which is the American, uh, sorry, the German company that deals with hotels and accommodation, uh, changing their notices, so not, uh, not uh, giving adverts to, to Cuban companies and so on, and Cuban resources. And so there's been some dialing down. And on top of that, just very recently, the Americans have put a ban on the chief executive officer of uh, the Melia, Hotel Melia Company, which is a Spanish company that has uh, cooperation with Cuba and runs a number of hotels in Cuba. And it's preventing him going to the United States, uh, where obviously they have business too, and imposing limits on them. So, you know, some of these measures and another scale in addition to that, which I think is extremely serious, is the enactment of what's called Title III of the Helms-Burton and the Torricelli Act, which is legislation that is giving authority to Cuban-Americans to file for um, recuperation of money uh, as a result of uh, properties that they claim have been stolen by the Cubans, but of course were actually simply uh, put into public ownership and given back to the people. Yeah, now what about Britain? You're obviously the, the head of the, the British uh, angle, the British end of Cuba solidarity. How are relations between Britain and Cuba now? 
Well, this is an interesting thing. Uh, people will be aware that Prince Charles uh, and Camilla went to visit Cuba, and that was a very friendly and cordial thing. And we're, I think we're all very conscious of the fact that the these kind of royal visits, state visits, whether you're a, a royalist or not, and I'm certainly not, but nevertheless, they're often a precursor to development of trade relations between countries, and they're used as a kind of publicity PR uh, stunt to, to, to you know, bring that in. And I thought, and I think many people thought, that this was a good, all good well for the future in that Britain would begin to develop its economic relations with Cuba much more than it has done. Um, at the moment, uh, we, I think we have to be cautious about this because I think with Brexit, whether you're for it or against it, clearly Johnson is intent on making trade deals with Trump and it's very evident that Trump may well try to add some conditionality to those trade deals, which won't directly, of course, talk about Cuba, but the implication will be that Britain becomes much more slavishly a follower of United States policy than it already is. Although the same uh, Johnson has insisted on Huawei being a part of the 5G rollout, he's playing tough on the Ansakulas affair, the killing of Harry Dunn, the young teenager mown down by an American CIA officer, Ansakulas. Uh, so it's not really clear yet just how far uh, Boris Johnson is trying to butter up uh, Donald Trump. In any case, there's going to be someone along in November. Uh, Bernie Sanders is, uh, historically speaking, a friend of Cuba. You must be hoping for that. Well, that would certainly mark a significant change. I, I agree with you, by the way, about the point about Johnson, that he's not shifted uh, completely in terms of kind of terms of trade deals. But I just, I'm just apprehensive that that might be uh, a feature of the way in which the United States uh, enters into any negotiations. For example, they were talking about uh, saying they're going to leave the National Health Service completely alone. But I think most people are very skeptical as to whether or not in the long run that'll be the case. So we'll see. But certainly, as you're indicating, I think uh, Bernie Saunders being elected uh, would mark a shift perhaps in the initial stages back, if he were to be elected, and one hopes that's the case, to the kind of positions that Obama had. But I would also hope being much more positive than that even, and going so far as to not just restoring diplomatic relations, but normalizing relations so that Cuba was treated uh, as any other country should, should be treated, that its sovereignty was respected, that the United States had not to tried to impose its economic vision of what should happen in Cuba. And of course, one of the things that remains an outstanding question mark is the occupation by the United States of America of Guantanamo. And clearly that would be a real indicator of United States respect for Cuba if it was to withdraw completely from that base. Great point. How do people uh, contact the Cuba Solidarity Campaign, Bernard? Well, we have the website, George, and um, we're very happy to uh, receive uh, people joining us and, and being coming engaged. We have a lot of trade unions uh, which are members of the Cuba Solidarity Campaign, the overwhelming majority of trade unions in Britain. Uh, and we're very happy also to provide speakers and to go and to ask questions because we do appreciate that the, the, the kind of uh, media coverage that Cuba has in Britain is not sympathetic, is not, in the main, it's not sympathetic. And therefore, we're willing to kind of give information and to answer questions as best we can if people have them. So it's cubasolidarity.com or? .org.uk.
cubasolidarity.org.uk. Bernard Regan, National Secretary, thanks very much indeed for joining us. Now, few people make it in public life with just one name. Napoleon, Elvis, Madonna. But Zubi is the latest man to do so. I have no idea the rest of his name, but he's a rapper, an author, a podcaster, a public speaker, a fitness expert, and a life coach. And he's on his way to superstardom. He was born in England and raised in Saudi Arabia, interesting in itself, where he attended an international school. He studied at Oxford University, where he started rapping and within months self-released his first album, Commercial Underground. His first single and music video, Stepping To Me, gained local popularity, and uh, since then he's created his own successful merchandise line, uh, reaching 12 on the iTunes hip-hop chart, which is no mean achievement. He's self-released five albums and three EPs on his label, COM Entertainment. They've sold thousands of copies independently. Uh, Zuby is known for his clean, that's important, positive and inspirational lyrics. He's performed over 100 gigs in eight countries, including the UK, USA, Saudi Arabia, Nigeria, Germany and the Czech Republic. In 2020, his fan base and achievements continue to grow rapidly. He's now the highest funded UK-based rapper on Kickstarter. His podcast, Real Talk with Zuby, reaches thousands of listeners every week. And his first book, Strong Advice, Zuby's Guide to Fitness for Everybody, has sold over a thousand copies uh, so far, and I'm one of them that has bought it. So welcome, Zuby, rapper, author, and host of Real Talk with Zuby podcast. Zuby, it's a terrific uh, honor to meet you. Thanks very much for uh, coming uh, on the show. It's an interesting CV, to say the least. Uh, are you the only rapper ever to emerge from the uh, dreaming spires of Oxford University? Um, well, firstly, I want to say thank you very much for that incredibly thorough and complimentary introduction. I, I really appreciate that. You're welcome. And in answer to the question, um, I'm aware of at least two others, so I can't claim that I am the only one. Really, I'm amazed uh, at yeah. that. Uh, that it's, <laughs> uh, it's hard enough for black people to get into Oxford University, let alone become rappers uh, when they're there. Are the other rappers black or white? Um, I'm aware of one Asian guy and one white guy from America. How very interesting, because I heard you talk in other uh, interviews uh, in which you said that one of the things that first grabbed you uh, was the... Uh, frankly nonsensical idea that Eminem was somehow uh, culturally appropriating uh, other people's uh, identity uh, by becoming a white rapper. Uh, and I was fascinated by your line of argument on that. It is nonsense, isn't it? It's definitely nonsense. I'm not a fan of the whole concept of cultural appropriation to begin with let alone to attempt to levy it at one of the greatest rappers of all time. Um, yeah, I, I'm not a fan of that whole line of thinking. I mean, it's, uh, it's uh, an artistic form. And yeah. uh, part of the point of an artistic form is that others should take it up, improve it, uh, expand it, uh, have a take on it, isn't it? Yeah, I agree completely. Hip-hop, of course, started in New York 
with a small segment of the black American population. But since then, it's been exported to every country in the world, as far as I'm aware, including the UK. I mean, people could claim that grime artists and rappers in the UK are culturally appropriating America. I mean, we could throw that label around it. So many different things from the clothes we wear to the languages we speak if we really wanted to go down that rabbit hole. So I think it's silly. And, you know, if we've got a society where people are promoting um, diversity and different cultures and different ethnicities and everything like that, then, of course, we're going to naturally rub off on each other in different ways and influence each other in different ways and inherent different things. And that's generally celebrated. So I find it odd when people want to make exceptions to that and call things cultural appropriation as if it's a totally negative thing. I mean, culture isn't something that you can sort of steal from somebody because you're not depriving of the person. If you were to appropriate something, you have to sort of deprive someone of that thing. But if you're just being influenced, influenced by it and putting your own spin on it or using it in a positive way or something, then... You know, there's no there's no loss to the other side on that one. As far as I'm concerned, that's an overall good thing for society. Now, I was equally interested that you grew up in Saudi Arabia, not a place often associated with rapping or or culture <laughs> or or music. It's haram, in fact, in Saudi Arabia, most forms or many forms of music. Uh, and what was that like? People are always surprised when I say that I loved growing up in Saudi Arabia. I mean, I was living in an expat community, so I'm aware that where I lived was very different in many ways from what you would call the real Saudi, right? I was in a little bit of a bubble, but when you go out, of course, I'd go outside of it as well, so I'd get to see both sides. So where I lived was a very international community, people from all over the world, different Arab countries, different European countries, North America, South America, everywhere. I grew up in a really, really diverse place. Um, and in terms of, I mean, I lived in Saudi for 19 years, and my overall view on it was very, very positive. Uh, people in the UK and US are always surprised when I say that, but to those who have lived there, um, most of them seem to be in agreement with me. Well, you've got to say as you see, and uh, that's a point I heard in one of your lyrics, that you're not left wing, you're not right wing, uh, you, just say, <laughs> you just say what you know. Uh, I try to. And uh, that, that's uh, perhaps uh, a new zeitgeist actually. Uh, because in many respects, left and right are becoming uh, rather more difficult to uh, define. Uh, mm. But obviously, I can't uh, interview you without uh, encouraging your iconoclasm uh, on the issue of, uh, of uh, gender politics, which have become something of an infatuation, an obsession in <laughs> British uh, politics, maybe in American politics, too, but even on the left, perhaps particularly on the left in mm. British politics, uh, the, one of the leaders, uh, one of the leading contenders to be leader of the Labour Party, Rebecca Long Bailey, uh, said the words today, I carefully noted them because they were a step further than I'd ever, I'd ever heard her make before, that if you identify as a woman, you are a woman. Mm. Uh, now, as a matter of science, as a matter of logic, of common sense, that's just about the craziest statement I've ever heard a leading politician make. And I prayed you in aid earlier uh, in the way that you broke the women's weightlifting <laughs> record. 
and you yes. identified as a woman while you were doing it. Yes. And thus you are the woman who has lifted heavier weights than any woman in history, even though you yes. quickly uh, re-identified as a man. Doesn't that sum up how stupid all of this is? Well, yeah, I mean, yes, I am the British women's in my weight class deadlift and bench press champion according to these new rules that are being set around gender identity. So, you know, there's a lot of people who have been talking about this for a while and people tend to get very angry and emotional and hyped up around this issue. And, you know, when I posted that tweet last year, it was about a year ago now and it went incredibly viral. And I wanted to just apply the same logic you know, rather than get angry or, you know, scream or shout or anybody or target or harass anybody. It's not not my method of doing things. I wanted to just say, OK, well, if those are the rules, then I'm going to just simply play by the rules and then people can agree or disagree and give me the record or not give me the record, depending on, you know, let's see how much let's see how strongly people stick to this idea when it's actually put into practice. And it, see, it turns out that People don't really like to stick to that idea when put into practice, and they'll start well, no, not trying to move the, the general public. Uh, mm. the, this stand taken by Rebecca Long Bailey will turn out to be uh, utterly ruinous on a nuclear level uh, to sure. her party's political prospects. So, amongst the public, yes, but in the bubble of the political class, uh, they do like it, and they are not dissuaded uh, by a giant hunk of a man like you. Uh, breaking the women's <laughs> bench press record because you were temporarily identifying as a woman. Because there are men, women winning women's and girls' sporting contests mm -hmm. all over the world mm -hmm. now and taking trophies, claiming medals that are supposed to be for girls and women. It's very, very bizarre. I, it's weird because I, I, I I've been talking about this for at least five years. And it's something that when I used to mention, people would tell me that I'm being alarmist, I'm being ridiculous. Some would even tell me that I'm being mean or prejudiced or something by saying that this whole concept is ridiculous. And then it turns out a few years later, people are now sort of seeing the fruits that are, com that are coming to light from these seeds that were planted many years ago. And this strange idea and ideology where you're just supposed to accept and believe that anyone can just be anything that they say. I mean, I don't know why, based on the same logic, I don't know why the same thing couldn't apply to race or ethnicity or age. In fact, I've seen some instances, um, even within the music industry, which I work in, where actually you now can self-identify your own race and your own ethnicity. Um, so I don't see why you can't also self-identify your own age. I mean, if I can be a woman, I don't know why I can't be 22 years old. I mean, I'm, I'm 33, but... I think me being 22 is more believable than me being a woman. Um, or I don't know why I can't be Indian or Pakistani or perhaps even white or Chinese. Um, so they're opening, I mean, they've opened a real Pandora's box with this idea. And it is causing a lot of problems. I mean, the most one of the most obvious ones is the sports issue. But um, it's also been an issue in prisons in changing rooms, in toilet facilities. I mean, it's really women who are going to suffer some of the impact, for well, the, so, the majority yeah. of the impact on this. Um, but when women, and, including some mm. of our greatest feminist icons like Germaine Greer and so on, 
when they mm. say what you and I are agreeing now, uh, they are in some cases physically assailed. Mm. They are no platformed. Uh, they are shunned. They're called the worst kinds of traitors, whatever the gender equivalent of race traitor uh, mm. is. That's what they are called. Uh, this is a particularly toxic uh, trough. I take my hat off to you for talking about it for the last five years because I didn't. <laughs> I okay. didn't. I kept quiet about it. Mm. I didn't want to get involved. I was involved in so many other fights and battles. I sure. didn't want to pick another one. But I've reached the stage, and you clearly already reached it, uh, where I'm not prepared to remain silent on these matters any mm. longer, be not least because uh, it is women themselves who will be the first victims in the prisons, for example. Yes, yes, you've and got, that has happened. Yeah, you've got a whole raft of males identifying as women put into women's prisons and then committing crimes against the women in those prisons. Mm. Sometimes the very same crimes that they were initially convicted of as well. Quite so. Which tends to be, yeah, it's, it, it's very strange because we're living in a time where it seems like a very, very tiny percentage of the population is dictating the, rule, the rules to the vast majority. I mean, if you, if you were to go out on the street and ask people about this, I'm pretty sure that at least, I'm pretty sure that eight out of 10, nine out of 10 people would think that the concept is silly and ridiculous and maybe they probably maybe they wouldn't even be aware that this is an issue and that this is a thing um but it seems like on this and many other issues a large majority of people are just very cowed you know people are afraid people don't want to speak out about against the mob people like you said people don't want to be attacked physically verbally online offline they don't want to put their jobs at risk they don't want to be um, you know, looked at at the wrong way by certain people. They don't want to be called any kind of phobic or ism, which, you know, yeah. people tend to throw around very, very aggressively, phobics, even when... Phobics and isms yes, are the zeitgeist yes. uh, in the political class. Well, Zubi, mm. you're not afraid, neither am I any longer, and I've thoroughly enjoyed talking to you. How do people get a hold of your podcast? Sure. It's on all the platforms, iTunes, YouTube, Spotify, etc. Just search for Zuby or Zuby podcast. The podcast is called Real Talk with Zuby. You can also find my music on all those platforms. Just search for Zuby, Z-U-B-Y. And I'm on all social media at Zuby Music. You're a gentleman, no matter what the uh, records say in the weightlifting <laughs> division. You're a gentleman and a scholar. And it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks very much for Thank joining much. me. Let's take a quick break. Who should be the next James Bond? Well, I think the current James Bond should stay on myself, but who should be the next James Bond? Because he isn't going to be. A, Idris Elba, 30%, say him so far. B, Tom Hardy, that's where my vote would go, 52%. C, Eddie Izzard, 18%. Why not? He could identify as James Bond. You can vote now on my Twitter poll. And uh, my wife, who is listening, says, tell George a Dutch celebrity tried changing his age but was declined by the court. Emil Rattleband. Because, you see, if that became a thing, I definitely would redefine my age because I identify as a 45-year-old. Absolutely. Now, 
as you know, last week we began our Hall of Fame. And the first inductee was the late and great Paul Robeson. Paul Robeson, a giant uh, of his times, as is the second inductee. From here on in, you're going to be picking the members of the Hall of Fame. You're going to be sending me on Twitter, on Facebook, by email, through the week, who you think should be in the Hall of Fame. Uh, but I have taken it upon myself to make the first two nominations. And so the second inductee of the mother of all talk shows, Hall of Fame, is Scots steel tempered with Irish fire. He is the great James Connolly, the second member of the Moats Hall of Fame, is a Scotsman who became famous in Ireland and throughout the world, paying with his life in the insurrection, unsuccessful though it was at the time, but crucial in the struggle to overthrow British rule of the majority of the country of Ireland. Connolly was born an Irish immigrant in a slum in Edinburgh in 1868, the third son of John Connolly and Mary McGinn. His parents had moved to Scotland from County Monaghan in Ireland and settled in the Cowgate, a ghetto where thousands of Irish people lived. He spoke with a Scottish accent throughout his life. The Cowgate was known as Little Ireland. Connolly's father and grandfathers were labourers. James had an education only up to the age of 10 in the local Catholic primary school. He left and worked in labouring jobs. Owing to the economic difficulties he was having, like his eldest brother John, he joined the British Army, enlisting at 14, falsifying his age, giving his name as Reed, as his brother had done. He served in Ireland with the 2nd Battalion of the Royal Scots Regiment for nearly seven years during a turbulent period in rural areas known as the Land War, which was a struggle for fair rents and security of tenure. He developed a deep hatred for the British Army that lasted his entire life. When he heard that his regiment was being transferred to India, he deserted. Connolly had another reason for not wanting to go to India. A young woman by the name of Lily Reynolds. They married in April 1890 and settled in Edinburgh. There, Connolly began to get involved in socialist politics. But with a young family to support, he needed a way to provide for them. He briefly established a cobbler's shop. But this failed after a few months. He wasn't much of a cobbler and he prioritised politics over shoe mending. Connolly became involved with the newly formed Independent Labour Party under Keir Hardy and at the same time, and here's a little known fact, he took up the study of and advocated the use of the neutral international language Esperanto. Two months after the birth of his third daughter, word came to Connolly that the Dublin Socialist Club was looking for a full-time secretary, a job that offered a salary of a pound a week.
Connolly and his family moved to Dublin, where he took up the position. At his instigation, the club quickly evolved into the Irish Socialist Republican Party, the ISRP. A combination of frustration with the progress of the ISRP and economic necessity caused Connolly to emigrate to the United States in September 1903 with no plans as to what he would do there. On his return to Ireland in 1910, he was the right-hand man to the great James Larkin of the Irish Transport and General Workers' Union. In 1913, in response to the Dublin lockout, an industrial dispute between 20,000 workers and 300 employers, he, along with an ex-British officer, Jack White, founded the Irish Citizens' Army. The ICA, an armed and well-trained body of labour men whose aim was to defend workers and strikers. Though they only numbered 250 people at most, their goal soon became the establishment of an independent and socialist Ireland. He also founded the Irish Labour Party, which has become a parlous, pale and pathetic shadow of the party he founded. He founded it as the political wing of the Irish Trade Union Congress in 1912. Like Lenin, Connolly opposed the First World War explicitly from a socialist perspective. He declared, I know of no foreign enemy of this country except the British government. During the Easter Rising, beginning on 24th April 1916, when the armed volunteers seized the Dublin post office, Connolly was commandant of the Dublin Brigade. As the brigade had the most substantial role in the rising, he was de facto commander-in-chief. He was badly wounded in the fighting, and following the surrender, he said to the other prisoners, don't worry, those of us that signed the proclamation of the Irish Republic will be shot, but the rest of you will be set free. He was right. He was sentenced to death by firing squad. He had been so badly injured from the fighting, a doctor had already said he had no more than a day or two to live, but the execution order was still given. He was unable to stand before the firing squad. He was carried to the prison courtyard on a stretcher, and they shot him dead in a chair. His body, along with those of the other leaders, was put in a mass grave without a coffin. The executions, the martyring of the rebel leaders, deeply angered the majority of the Irish population, most of whom had shown until that point no support for the rebellion. It was James Connolly's execution that caused the most controversy raising public awareness of the goals of the fighting men of 1916, which gathered and garnered and galvanized more support 
for the movement that they were fighting for. And therefore, the blood of James Connolly watered the ground that led to the foundation of the Irish Republic and one day the reunification and unity of the Irish people across all 32 counties. I'm very proud to be a countryman of James Connolly. I'm very proud to have the same politics as James Connolly. James Connolly was one of the greatest men who fought the employers and fought the empire. And though he did not immediately succeed, in the end, he won. And his name will be remembered forevermore in the annals of labor history and of the history of anti-imperialism. As the great song said, Connolly was there. And he is proudly here in the Hall of Fame of the mother of all talk shows. Let's take a call. And remember, next week, I want your nomination as to who should be the third. Patrick is in Louisiana. Go ahead, Patrick. Hey, Mr. Galloway, it's great to hear your voice once again. Um, I wanted to call about a, a previous caller from uh, Georgia had called about Bloomberg. And yeah. I wanted to ask or, or pose this, uh, this situation. I think Bloomberg is a Clinton plant. I think that, you know, the Clintons are, are really politically backing his candidacy. And I think that if he doesn't ascertain the nomination for the Democratic Party, and Bernie does, I believe he will bolt and run as a third-party candidate, costing Bernie the election, and re-electing Trump. What do you think? That could happen. Uh, I'd much prefer Bernie to stand as a third-party candidate if they cheat him. Uh, if uh, Bloomberg runs as an independent candidate, he may damage Trump as much as he would uh, damage uh, Bernie. He is, of course, at heart a Republican. He was a Republican. Uh, he was a Republican mayor of New York City. He backed George W. Bush in his presidential elections. He's given a fortune to the Republican Party. So it is quite possible that an independent run by Bloomberg might well damage Trump more than it would damage Sanders. What do you think? I think that's an interesting analysis. I never thought of it that way. I think he could do damage to Trump. But I see uh, that's true about him formerly being a Republican. But, of course, at one time, Trump was a registered Democrat. Politically, he's been all over the map as well. So mm. three of the three is the only principal candidate. These now, are, uh, these are uh, turbulent Democrat. and unpredictable times, Patrick. We've never been in this kind of place before in the United States of America, where a socialist is the front runner for the Democratic Party nomination to stand against a Republican president as unbelievable as Donald Trump. Yeah, that's exactly right. We've seen, the, the, we've seen populism on both the left and the right. You know, you've had elements within the Democratic Party that have uh, kind of have manifested itself similar to what you've seen with, with uh, Bernie, but no, no candidate has ever come close to getting the nomination. You've always had these neoliberal candidates who would always win out in the day, you know, like uh, Carter and yeah. Clinton and Tweedledee, Perry and Tweedledee, Ford, and, Tweedledee and Tweedledum. 
A great call, Patrick. Not a great line, but a great call. Thanks for it. Dennis is in New York. <clears throat> Let's go to Dennis. Hey, George. How are you today? By the grace of God, I'm good. What would you like to talk about? Well, uh, George, so uh, earlier a caller had mentioned uh, the possibility, or you had, had come in and said the possibility of maybe Bernie being eliminated in a JFK kind of way. And that, yeah. I was talking about this a week ago with a friend of mine, and I didn't know whether in the age of social media it would be something that they could carry off a, 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 a takeout of that uh, magnitude, only because even in the Kennedy case it was maybe two or three years later that they all, you know, a copy of the JFK, the Zabruta film, uh, was circulating college campuses. It was very slow. Even the King trial in 99, the civil trial in Memphis that convicted a jury of 12, convicted the government involvement in the killing of Martin Luther King. Like, nobody knew about it. It's a crime of the century, and yet O.J. gets all the press, and this was ignored. So do you think in social media they can get away with it as easily? Well, it, it would be a terrifyingly dangerous thing for them to do. Uh, it would be uh, the worst thing uh, that they had done since the killing of their own president uh, in the uh, form of JFK. Uh, and as you say, it was easy, much easier to suppress uh, the facts of the killing of Jack Kennedy than it would be uh, a killing now in 2020. And so they'd have to weigh very carefully the potential costs of uh, carrying out such an operation. But they don't have to do it directly, Dennis. The United States is filled with killers with guns. The United States is filled with, with, uh, with people with a grudge with, uh, who, can be, who can be motivated, mobilized, oriented uh, towards carrying out such a, a crime. But it would be a very, very big and risky thing for them to do. The question is, is it a bigger risk than electing a socialist, the president of the United States of America? That's quite a big thing too, isn't it, Dan? Yeah, it is. I was thinking that if he got elected, then they have a lot of ways within Congress and, and other factors to try and undermine his power. Certainly the media, uh, Bloomberg is showing, can marshal forces any which way they want. But I, I am curious about you know, how they would deal with that. Well, let's pray to God that it never happens and it's only a dark uh, uh, suspicion that you and I and a few others uh, are entertaining. Dennis, thanks for the call. Jared is in Pennsylvania. Let's hear from him. Jared, welcome. Uh, hello, George. I want to give a bit of a perspective from a swing from one of the swingiest of swing states in America, yes. the yes. Rust Belt. Yes. Um, about Bernie Sanders. Um, first of all, I am scared for Bernie Sanders' life. I, I say that sincerely. Not only his health, but I fear that um, not only a crazy person could come out and shoot him, but somebody could um, threaten his family, which is something else that we're not talking about. Um, the, the, the CIA or uh, some shadowy intelligence agency could threaten his family if he doesn't go along with the program with Russia or China. And that, that is something we should also take into account as well. Um, as for Bernie's chances, um, from what I'm seeing, I think Bernie is doing pretty good, that even if they try to, to rig it, 
um, in, on the polls wise that, that they can they can only cheat so far before before it starts becoming obvious of what they're doing. I mean, in New Hampshire, I'm still skeptical of whether Bernie really only won by one percent. I think it could have been a lot uh, bigger, but I haven't seen the exit polls, so I don't even know. Well, um, the, the exit Bloom, poll was four points greater than that. Yeah, that that makes me a bit suspicious, but. Yeah. Um, it, it, it is run by the New Hampshire government there, the primary, so it's a little bit more legitimate. A little bit better than the, the Iowa caucuses. <laughs> run by the, Demo the DNC. That's geez, that craziness. Um, but uh, Bloomberg, I want to talk about him. Um, to give a perspective, he is actually winning over... Uh, black voters more than you would expect, which is kind of uh, shocking, I find, a little bit, considering his uh, past comments and uh, stop-and-frisk policy. And I was talking to an um, older uh, uh, black uh, woman that I work with, I've been friends for years with, and uh, she says basically it's a race between uh, Bernie and Bloomberg, and while she says that she's very sympathetic with Bernie Sanders and voted with voted for him in the last primary, she says that uh, Bloomberg also has a lot of money and um, could also be uh, a nominee as well. So it's very fascinating the dynamic it is, here. It is, uh, Jared. Just because of the hour, I need to cut you short. I've got to go to New Orleans to hear from Torres. Go ahead, Torres. Good yeah, um, evening, sir. Evening to you, um, sir. I'm calling, I'm calling for a question about myself because I'm a whistleblower and also a comment. I'll start with the comment first. First, um, the DOJ is, is trying to classify WikiLeaks as the same thing as ISIS, which is a bad thing for Julian Assange and, and, and everybody else that's um, attached to WikiLeaks because that's going to contaminate the jury pool if they ever um, extradite him over here. And also by me being a whistleblower and saying and um trying to get my case started about uh, Mikey DeBakey contaminated water from what I've seen as a whistleblower, and I have a, I have a um I'm a disabled vet, right? Physically, I'm disabled to a certain extent, but I have a mental test coming up with a psychiatrist, and the psychiatrist um medical. Staff, they, they, the, the clinic is attached to Mikey to the, uh, the Bakey, right? To the VA system. They're a contractor, third party, right? And I'm afraid that if I go in there, they might try to claim that I'm mentally unstable. And, and then it would be hard for me to be as a witness towards from what I've seen because a prosecutor or, defend, or defense attorney or whatever can slice me apart and saying, oh, this man is, you know. He's schizophrenia, or he's this and that, and that'd be another way how the VA, you know, would basically destroy my life. Well, I'm, I'm and, very, uh, I'm very it. sorry to hear uh, all of that, my friend. I'm sorry that I'm not able to help you with it either. Uh, here's an email uh, from Kevin in North Belfast. Thanks, George, for hurting and offending many of your loyal followers again, as we have asked in the past through email not to refer to the loss of a loved one as committed or the S word, as it is horrible, especially as a family who have suffered. 
ending their life in this way uh, is accepted. You're lucky this has not visited you, otherwise you would know how harrowing it is. And I'm sure you would run to correct anyone who made such a hurting reference. I don't expect to hear this being broadcast as usual with your I'm okay Jack attitude. Well, you did hear it uh, broadcast. Uh, the statement that she had committed suicide was made by her lawyers, uh, not by me. James in Dundee said, can I make a suggestion for a poll? It might be nice to see what the viewers and listeners think. I enjoy the callers when you get a good argument. So the poll can be, what do you all think of the show? Should I, A, keep it as it is, B, have more callers, C, have more guests? I think it would be interesting <coughs> to see the result. Interesting indeed. Uh, I don't know if a poll is the way, but feel free to let me know uh, on Twitter, by email, uh, or by call uh, exactly what you would like more of and less of. Um, Laura says, I would like to nominate Sophie Scholl as a true hero to be commemorated on your program. Who would imagine being as courageous as Sophie and her brother Hans as they faced their deaths and so inspirationally eloquent in the face of incomprehensible cruelty and suffering? It will be 77 years since their horrific murders on the 22nd of February. I've attached a link to a beautiful song, This Beautiful Day by Reg Muros. I don't know if you can play music on moats, I can't, but it will make you cry. Uh, I myself commemorate the annual anniversary of the martyrdom of Sophie and her brother Hans, who were, I think, 20 or 21 when they were murdered by the Nazis. They were a part of an underground movement seeking to oppose fascist uh, dictatorship in Germany. And I'm moved uh, indeed, Laura, by your nomination. Uh, Patrick McCarthy says, you should consider inducting the great Irish-American statesman of courage and conviction who vigorously opposed the Vietnam War, Senator Eugene McCarthy. Uh, tweets on our poll about James Bond. How's that going, by the way? Who should be the next James Bond? Idris Elba, 33%, that's up three. Tom Hardy, 49%, that's down three. Eddie Izzard, stationary on 18%. Uh, a good number of votes in, but you can still vote. Uh, I'll give you another five minutes or so, maybe, uh, to vote on my Twitter feed. Who should be the next James Bond? Idris Elba, Tom Hardy, or Eddie Izzard? I wonder who the 18 people, 18% of the people who chose Eddie Izzard uh, are. Uh, tweets on it, Messenger says, enough with, enough with the white people. Shesh, lol, Alba would make a great Bond. And Ashling International says, Michael Fassbender should be the next James Bond. Nolan Crane says, I think it should be Lawrence Fox. <laughs> and Love Life More says, Idris Elba for me, about time we have a black James Bond. He's a great actor and has a classy look about him. Bernie Beach Trump says, Idris Elba, any other answer reveals you to be a cop. <laughs> and Five Star says, why isn't Sajid D Javid on the options list? Kevin Delaney says, Kathy Burke. And Katia's Compass says, Charlize Theron identifying as a man. Now there is an intriguing possibility. 
Sandy says Idris Elba and Tom Hardy are probably too good for Bond and don't need it. But if they got it, I might watch the Bond movies again. Well, obviously, for a man of my age, class and background, uh, there'll never be another uh, Sean Connery James Bond for me. Uh, but I must say the current James Bond is pretty spectacularly good uh, at it. Now, I'm going to tell you who's the first entrant on the wall of shame in just a few minutes' time, but I might be able to squeeze in another call uh, before that and read another couple of messages. Thomas Ryan says, All suicides are sad. Why do we not give the same response to the poor souls who are not in the limelight, like Caroline? Most of the suicides in Greater Manchester don't even get into the Manchester Evening News. I knew there, I knew there would be a legend coming along, and there is. Clear the lines. It's Norma in Bristol. Norma, welcome. Hello, George. Uh, great program. Thank you. I, I enjoyed the talk on Iraq. It was very, very good. Thank you so much. Um, now, this is a bit frivolous, but I disagreed with Frank from Germany about Big Brother. Yeah. Now, a lot of people who deride it never watched it. Mm. And there are a lot of people who are snobby about it. Well, he was it. one of them. He didn't watch it. Well, no, he didn't. No. I mean, I always say when people say, I actually enjoyed Big Brother, you see. And they go, oh, my God. And it's not just that. It was like relief, George. Yes, I like we can't watching... uh, all work and no play leaves Jack That's a dull right. boy, huh? Yeah, well, I like watching how people reacted, you know, to different situations. And uh, when it comes to Jade Goody, um, who was a participant on it, she brought cervical, she died actually from cervical cancer, but she brought that to the fore. And now there's much earlier, de you know, the, what's the word? Detection, detection, that's right. Earlier detection of cervical cancer. Um, it's just, I think, well, I've just got very, very quickly. Mm. Um, George, listen, George, you've got a face, right? You've got two eyes, you've got a nose. Now, my original philosophy is, one eye is for imagination, one eye is for initiative, and your nose, which is a V, is for variety. And that's my original philosophy, which I'm trying to say is why I like Big Brother. Uh, it's a very good uh, explanation. Uh, I, I had never watched Big Brother before uh, I went into it myself. I went into it for the reasons I adumbrated uh, earlier. Uh, but I'm not stupid enough to deny uh, that our series in particular, by all accounts, was uh, fantastically entertaining. Uh, we had the late Pete Burns. Uh, we had my yeah, good friend did, Dennis yeah. Rodman. We had all kinds of uh, fascinating, interesting people and the clashes of personality and insights into personality and distortions of personality. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, you know, t tobacco is... You know, it's not by accident that Mandela banned smoking amongst the ANC prisoners when they arrived on Robben Island because he said, if you're still smoking here, you'll be a prisoner twice. You'll be a prisoner of the regime and you'll be a prisoner of the tobacco. And uh, being locked up in the Big Brother house where tobacco was being rationed by Big Brother uh, was an enormously powerful and distorting uh, factor. Uh, there, are, 
There were a lot of people who smoked on Big Brother, not just celebrity, but on the ordinary yeah. ones. I wonder if you'd be allowed to do that nowadays. Possibly not. Well, anyway, yeah, it's that, no more. Yeah. It is okay. no more. It is no longer. I it think. may be coming back, George, that year after next there are talks of China for bringing it back. Okay. I don't think, whatever the money, I mean, I was later offered for the last series of, on Channel 4, before it moved to Channel 5, I was later offered literally a king's ransom on which I could have retired to go on the last series of Big Brother. It was in uh, 2012. I declined, and along came the Bradford by-election, which I won and returned to Parliament, which would never have happened if I'd gone into Big Brother. So the real, the real Big Brother, the Almighty was looking out for me. Norma, thank you very much indeed. You're going to like the next thing I have to say, I'm sure, because I only have, I think, time now for the first nomination of the Wall of Shame. We have a mother of all talk shows, Hall of Fame, and we have a mother of all talk shows, Wall of Shame. And from next week, that'll be up to you to make nominations too. But as it's my prerogative to make the first nomination, I'm going to nominate Margaret Hilda Thatcher, the Conservative Prime Minister for a whole decade, a decade which destroyed much of what had been good about life in this country, which tore the social fabric into shreds, which decimated our industrial areas as a matter of deliberate policy, which flooded as a matter of deliberate policy our coal mines, which broke the proud legions of the mine workers in this country and their wives and their families, their communities which disfigured and destroyed not just much of our manufacturing capacity in Britain, but left us on a road to absolute dependence on finance capital, which almost destroyed us in the crash in 2008. Because she deliberately let the hunger strikers die in the north of Ireland by provocatively ending their political status, and paying no mind to whether their hunger strike led to death and further radicalization, further political and military consequences that were dreadful for Ireland and for Britain. Because she shot those young Argentine conscripts in the back as they ran away from the Falklands Island when she sank the Belgrano because of her love of the Freedmanite Chicago boys, hard right finance capitalism, which beggared millions in our country and cared not for their fate. Because Margaret Thatcher was so wicked, her whole life began in wickedness. One of the first slogans I ever uttered was Margaret Thatcher milk snatcher when she took the free school milk on which poor children like me had depended in school when she snatched out of their hands this free school milk.
but it was her attitude to the North, to the Midlands which had voted for her, to Scotland, her destruction of our coal industry, our steel industry, our shipbuilding industry, our car industry, our truck, our bus, our railway workshop industries. Her absolute vindictive destruction of the hundreds of thousands of people who depended on deep coal mining in our country and turning her back, walking on the other side of the road so far as their difficulties and problems were concerned. And it's no accident that Margaret Thatcher, Milk Thatcher, Milk Snatcher, it's no accident that she, addressing the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland on the mound, said there is no such thing as society. There is only individuals and families. No such thing as us and always. No such thing as honoring and cherishing other people's parents, caring for other people's children. No such thing as society. Only me and now. Me and now, as Neil Kinnock most famously said. She also told the Church of Scotland General Assembly that the important thing about the parable of the Good Samaritan was that the Good Samaritan had money, had made money, rather than the fact that he refused to pass by on the other side of the road when he found someone in distress and suffering. I hated Margaret Thatcher all of my life. I fought her, I campaigned against her. I fought in Parliament against the absurd state funeral that she was afforded. Big Ben was muffled, Parliament suspended for a woman who cared nothing for Parliament, for democracy. It was the poll tax that done her, and I was one of those leading the campaign of non-payment of the poll tax. So although I hated her, I at least got the satisfaction of being in the vanguard of those that brought her down. And when she was buried, I agreed with Elvis Costello, who this week unbelievably accepted an OBE. For what, Elvis? Why? I said, Margaret Thatcher, tramp the dirt down. You are on our wall of shame forever.